listening to Planet Pod, the podcast for everyone who cares about the planet. Well, we've come to Bristol today, um, following on for our, from our visit to Aston Martin. Um, Jim, were you tempted by, by the cars at all? Well, I was, I was. I think if the price tag had been slightly lower, I might have been even more tempted. But no, beautiful cars, definitely, and uh, really interesting just to see that sort of juxtaposition between luxury and sustainability and do the two do the two equate i think they kind of do but you know mm, i'm not wholly convinced bit, do i agree they were skeptic on you i am a skeptic they are very beautiful but there's no denying that they are very polluting however perhaps we'll just save up for an all-electric lagonda why not why not yeah it could be a long wait <laughs> um so from from the sharp edge of cutting edge of motor manufacturing here we are to the cutting edge of lawmaking and we're with UKLA, the uk's environmental law association and their wild law group and the conference today is all about wild law and wild law is not um, enacting legislation to protect you know wolves and badgers and wild creatures it's much much more complex than that and it's to do with understanding and 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 really i feel like empowering nature to have its own voice in our system isn't it it is and it's i mean it's a fascinating subject in itself but just this whole idea of how something that's inanimate can be assigned rights to wild places or natural features like mountains and rivers i mean how can they have rights and that's of course that's um, kind of what some of today's discussion is going to be about isn't it yeah i think it's quite complex isn't it because you don't wouldn't necessarily think that that a, that a wild place or a river could have rights and therefore could could be a petitioner in in a legal case and then you have to think about how far does this go i mean you know if we do we do we just stop at rivers and mountains do we have trees do we do we look at you know does the rose bush in my garden have rights i mean it's a slightly ridiculous argument but 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 i think it's about the continuum isn't it how far do we go and what is it that we need in the natural world to protect and, mm. and where should we draw the line So we've now come out of the conference, which has been fascinating, and we're about to pull our guests together around the table. So for the podcast, we'll be joined by Shahana Gomez, who convened the Wild Law Conference, Natasha Bradshaw and Emma Bean, who've been working on the concept of public trust doctrine in relation to UK rivers and the shoreline, the waterfront, Um, Ronan Kennedy from the University of Ireland in Galway, and Colin Robertson, who um, has worked a lot in New Zealand uh, around the issue of rights of Mother Earth and looking at whether or not national parks and rivers can have status in law. Fascinating discussion ahead. Welcome to Planet Pod. Today we're out on the road again and I'm delighted to be here at the UKLA Wild Law Conference discussing the whole issue of wild law. And I'm absolutely certain for many Planet Pod listeners that wild law isn't necessarily something you've thought about and if you have you probably like me have no idea what it means Um, so it's fantastic to have a group of experts and leading thinkers and practitioners in the field around the table today and I really wanted to just kick off with trying to get some sense of what we mean when we talk about wild law some attempt at a definition it's an enormously complex subject and naturally we can't do it all in the space of one pod 
Um, but just to kick us off, Shahana, you're um, convening the conference today. Can you really, if you can, explain to people in simple terms what wild law is? What does it actually mean? Um, well, I like to think of it as rewilding the law, but it's it's um, really about a, a paradigm shift, <laughs> if you like, um, to a, a different way of doing law. So at the moment, um, law generally, our legal system, is um, anthropocentric or human-centred in that it, it caters for human beings, but it doesn't really take into account... Um, the ecological reality that we live in, the you know the, the natural world that surrounds us, or oh, it only does that in terms of how it serves us and how uh, and in terms of our relation to it. But um, for me, wild law um, is about shifting that focus to include nature as having an equal right to exist as we do. Um, so, so it's a sort of earth-centred approach. Okay, and it's but it's more than just pure lawmaking, isn't it? Am I right in thinking it's actually a kind of like almost like a moral philosophical approach yeah, to, to, to to law and, and trying to get a, a better sense of balance within the legal system, but also in terms of looking at the needs of, of, of our very precious and fragile planet. That's quite a big shift in the way that laws are made and enacted and, and challenged and, and brought forward through the legal system, isn't it? I mean, that requires everybody who's involved in, in, in perhaps in environmental protection or in the world of environmental rights to think very differently about, about the, how we could use law as a tool to protect the planet as opposed to how we, you know, we protect perhaps the interests of big business or corporates or those who, who perhaps want to damage the earth for, for financial or political gain. So do you think there's a, uh, is there a general sense, both in the UK and wider, that this is a, a movement that's gathering pace? Is this something that, that or is it something very special? So there's a group of very specialist people, you know, in the room next door to us, you can probably hear them, um, who, who obviously got a great interest in this. But, but just generally, I mean, you know, amongst colleagues around the table, is this something that's getting a bit of momentum across the world? I mean, you know, or is this just something that you especially say when you think about? Uh, no, I think this is something that is developing and, and, and moving at a relatively rapid pace compared to, to the past in the past few years, uh, in that um, you can see traces of these wild law ideas in international and in national in a number of uh, different countries. So the, the most significant um, instances of it internationally is that uh, the, the idea that nature has rights is actually mentioned in the preamble to the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. Um, but um, there are also, uh, it's also mentioned in the Ecuadorian constitution. Um, there is legislation in New Zealand that um, <coughs> essentially recognises the, the rights of uh, rivers and, and national parks. Uh, there are court cases from India that ascribe legal personhood of, of a certain sort of limited uh, kind to uh, rivers and glaciers. And that's partly, I mean, one of the things you referenced there, and it was partly the Universal Declaration of the Rights of Mother Earth. Is that right, the Bolivian experience? Yeah, yeah. 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 And has that been instrumental in, in shaping some of the thinking and some of the work that you've been doing, for example? Um, that's been somewhat relevant. Uh, I, I, um, I'm very interested in how we make these kinds of ideas uh, practical and real. Um, and I agree with you to a certain extent that this does involve thinking about things in a very different way, but I also uh, think that we already, um, both people generally and, and lawyers particularly, um, 
are comfortable with the idea that there are things other than humans that have rights within the legal system. Uh, the obvious example are companies. Um, we deal with companies all the time, we work for companies. These are not, there are people within the law, but they're not people in any real sense, and yet we're completely comfortable with that idea. Yeah, the idea that a company is an entity and therefore can have yeah. a res- be represented in court. Yeah. Um, but but wild law takes that one step further, doesn't it? That talks about um, rivers and and, and and past forests and, and areas actually having that that representation. Um, earlier in the conference, you were talking about this. I mean, you, you referenced companies, but you also referenced other examples, didn't you, of, of where something that we perhaps wouldn't normally think has an, an entity or a right to be represented has been, and we're comfortable with that as a concept as well, in more general law, perhaps. Yeah, so um, on top of that, there we have a <coughs> relatively complex and well-developed system of laws around uh, guardianship, so uh, protection of children who or people who have some, some sort of uh, mental uh, disability, uh, that uh, their rights and interests can be protected uh, when, as and when they're needed to. Um, and uh, in the particular Irish context, uh, what, what, what I was talking about earlier was some court cases from the late 1980s uh, where um, the courts were willing to allow um, uh, campaigning organisations to represent the rights of the unborn in court. Mm. And, and we know that, that that's been a quite a contentious issue, hasn't it, for many people, because of course it, it goes across, you know, the law is never neutral, um, it's informed by our own prejudices and views and, and beliefs and, and philosophies, and I should imagine that, that some of the aspects of, of, of wild law that we're discussing today and that we've read about are themselves quite controversial or quite challenging for both states and, and individuals. Um, do you see any real? I mean, what what do you think are the real roadblocks to making some of this 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 wild law movement better known and actually having more impact? I mean, are there roadblocks, or is it just that people don't know about it and they need to know? I think it's a mix of a variety of different things. I think that, um, the extent to which there is public awareness of it is probably relatively limited still, but it is uh, gaining a lot more attention in, in a lot of circles uh, in the past few years. I think there is that idea of. Uh, mind shift, as Shannon talked about, uh, a paradigm shift. It, it is uh, about um, lawyers, policymakers, and the person in the street actually um, reorienting the way that they think about the world. I don't think it is that much of a jump. As I said, if you can think about a company as being a person, at least in some limited way, why can't you think about a river or a tree as being that? But it, it, I think there is also a big roadblock behind that, which is that uh, once you get beyond the uh, sort of technical detail of how this actually works in legal context, which is the sort of thing that lawyers are concerned with. Uh, really, what you're talking about are very uh, significant and difficult value questions and questions about what our overall uh, political and social goals are. Um, and uh, those are big issues for the environmental movement, uh, whatever we return. Yes, and, and there are links, of course, um, to the human rights movement as well, aren't there? It's, there's a lot of um, crossover and read across and, and the relationship as- aspects of, of human rights law and wild law. Colin, you've particularly been involved in, in doing just that, haven't you? Pulling together a, a case to make a, a river, a, 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 you know, have a river have a right. Um, but that was in New Zealand, am I right? That's right. Having been a member of the UK Wild Law Group now for a number of years and our discussions which we've had on legal personality for nature, rights for nature, we became aware that the New Zealanders had enacted a new law. 
and this was uh, a law in 2017 which goes by the partly Maori name of Te Awa Tupua, the Wanganui River Claim Settlement Act 2017. And this act is interesting for us because we have heard about legal personality for nature and right, but we want to see what does this mean in practice? What can you actually do? What is being done? And the situation in New Zealand is very interesting because there has been conflict. It's a colonial environment, an indigenous community with a different culture, a collective community, heavily rooted in nature, and then the European, in particular British and English law applying in New Zealand. And so we have this law which is a combination, a hybrid between an English law legal base and a Maori cultural uh, superimposition. And the law uh, takes the form of a settlement. And it's culturally important because the Crown acknowledges the uh, failures towards the Whanganui River and towards the Maori people, the Maori iwi or tribe in the region, and it, it accepts. And it also sets up, as part of the settlement, the legal personality for the Rohonganui. And it gives it this name, but then behind this name, it sets up a whole, if you like, bureaucratic administrative structure, which is a sharing, if you like, of power and responsibility. But on the one hand, the European side through the Crown, and on the other side, the Maori side through the Honganui Ewe. And each side can nominate a representative who acts as the face, the human face of this legal concept. And behind that, they have a very complex and very sophisticated and subtle structure involving trusts, involving funds, involving integrating the system into the whole New Zealand legal system. It's a charity, it's a public body, it pays taxes, and it also manages land because the Crown transferred the, the bed of the, the Rohonganui to this new entity, so it becomes a landowner and a property holder. And what is interesting about the New Zealand legislation is that it doesn't change property rights. So private property is not affected uh, directly, uh, except insofar as provided for in the legislation. And that means that we have here a text which is an extension of English law conceptually, and where we can say there's the, the Maori dimension, which is not relevant to us, but there are principles, there are methods, there are techniques which they've used, which we can study, and we can see whether they're relevant to a British context or not. You're listening to Planet Pod, brought to you by Akil Management and the Planet Mark. Do get in touch with us. You can tweet at planet underscore pod or visit the website theplanetpod.com where you can subscribe to the pod and download earlier episodes. One significant advantage is if the mountain is legal personality, any planning changes have to be notified immediately. To that the means the local to the mountain. <laughs> that means the local people find out immediately yeah, exactly. and That's can get in point. at the very beginning. Yeah. Whereas at the moment it's only after a decision has been made and then you're into judicial review, which you quite frankly is on procedural issues. I love you that. Forget. You might have to notify the mountain. Exactly. <laughs> and this, this was, uh, in our discussion, this was actually one of the key... That's a really key point. In my research on UK coastal governance, the key point that's coming out is the need for more bottom-up and more leadership. And so those two things contradict. 
but actually they don't when you look at it from that angle. Yes. Because if the local communities have to be involved in the decision-making process, yes. they are therefore put into a role of leading. Yes. And, and, and there's a loop in planning law that requires all legal personalities to be consulted. Is that, is that what you were saying? I'm assuming what well, anyone with an interest, I'm not a planning lawyer, but I would imagine anyone with a direct interest must be notified. And because mountains don't exist, but if they're a legal person, they have a direct interest, therefore they must be notified. Therefore you have to tell the representatives, therefore the whole community knows. But I think that if we are looking at it from a, whether it's an English or a Scottish, a Welsh Northern Ireland context, I would say we start firstly with where we are, what the local needs are, and then we build up from that and we take what is necessary. And we know that they already have river trusts and such like, which are very, very active. So we have a lot of experience in these matters and a lot of methods and we can build on this. But I would just like to say that the, the underlying feeling is that we have had environmental law now since the 70s. It has done a great deal to reduce pollution. I think of environmental law large in terms of chemistry. But the problem is that it addresses individual issues. It does not address the whole problem, the collective, the holistic issue. And this is what wild law seeks to remedy. So it's a reaction against a, a felt and a very real need. And people experience this at a personal level in their own environment. And from a legal point of view, we're also trying to introduce what is ecological law. We're trying to build the foundations and principles of ecological law. And this is work in progress. It'll take time, but a lot of people who are very anxious to, to work in this direction. I mean, you're, that, that's fascinating, your example that you gave there of the river. I mean, so many different issues involved in what you've just said, cross-cultural issues, linguistic issues, um, you know, that relationship of the kind of colonial, post-colonial relationship. Um, but actually, you know, as you've just described it, I can see that playing out here in the UK because, I mean, you replace perhaps the Maori community for a local community who may have been responsible for their local environment for many hundreds of years, um, particularly in a rural environment, and the needs of, 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 of people around the environment they live. So I'd really like to explore that. But before I do that, I just wanted to pick up on some of the things you were saying about the sense that you know, you've given the river a personality. So, so it's not the river that, that, that... I mean, obviously, it's being administered by people on behalf of the river. So, I mean, I think that's quite a difficult concept for people to grasp, that perhaps a river would have rights. And that does take us into that whole area of where do we stop, where do we start? I mean, you know, if we play it out, does, does that mean that, that, that all landscapes have rights? And, and how do we manage that relationship between the needs that we have as people and communities to use the, lands, the land um, for, for sustenance and various things and, and how we respect those rights. So that's quite a difficult, complex, fragile relationship, isn't it? Or could be, potentially. It's very interesting. And the way I look at it is to say that I would like to start off with pilot projects because there are issues here which we don't know all of the details. Some people have a lot of experience in certain ways, but we're trying to take this starting point of a mountain as they've also done in New Zealand, or a river. And they're ones looking at the whole ecological environment, including people, and especially including the locals. So on one point which you're saying, yes, it is rooting attention back to the local community, and it is empowering the local community. So they're still able to fish, for example, Absolutely. It's not as if the river's pristine and untouchable? Absolutely. It does not change, if you like, from a formal point of view, it does not change anything. Everything remains as it is now. 
It is just that you say, well, let's take the viewpoint of mountain. And I like to think of Ben Nevis, I wrote a little article and there was interest in, in it and so on. Um, if you say, what is the viewpoint of the mountain? What's its ecology? We, we know that there's animals grow, live in it, and there's plants, and there's river, and there's erosion, and all of these things, and people are coming to visit, and farmers are farming there. And you have this overall view, and I would like to say, well, let's start from a group who says, I am the mountain, I speak for the mountain, because there's a language element in this, nature has its own language. Humans have, we have our language, our human languages. For me, there's an interpretation and a translation between the language of nature and the language of humans. And it goes both ways. It comes from nature towards humans and the other way. So we need interpreters for nature. We need people to say, I am the voice. I understand because I have studied. But also it's not just one person. It is the wider community. Because you may have one person or two people as representatives, but, but they are part of a wider community, which is checking, which is controlling that they are actually truly somehow in tune. So it's not just a, a simple... I own, therefore I can do, it is, it is the wider community which is generating this. And you're looking at it, and this is where the wildlife element comes in, because we want to restore our ecological systems, we want to restore the balance. Rewilding is a very important part of this. And it is not to say, well, we want to do people down. No, it is that working within a community studying, analysing, thinking, we want gradually to work towards a sustainable balance which will bring back the birds we've lost, which will bring back the other species and maintain it. Absolutely, and, it's that yeah. sense of, the, of, of, of no one person or personality in the sense of ever being um, dominant, is it? It's absolutely that. It's that, it's that. it's that equilibrium that we're re-establishing. And, and Can I just say one Yes, Shana, of course. Um, Colin's presentation, one thing that um, struck me about the Wanganui River Act is the uh, um, it, it said I am the river and the river is me and that's a very indigenous kind of way of relating to nature and for me that's kind of at the heart of this, it's about relating to it in, in that way in a more sort of intimate way. I can see a lot of people would immediately identify with that because anyone who knows um, you know, even a tiny bit about Maori culture would think, oh yes, I understand that's about indigenous populations and their relationship to the land, which we possibly assume is much closer than ours. But actually there are, there are parallels with what's going on here in the UK, aren't there? And, and Natasha and Emma, you've been working on some of this, both with the, in relationship to, to rivers, through, but also in relationship to the coast. Is that right? Yeah, so people are part of the ecosystem. And whilst we've had a huge level of uh, movement towards environmental regulation since the 1970s, um, in some ways this has divorced people from a sense of ownership and stewardship over our resource. And we kind of need local people where they connect to their local environment to, to override a very complex set of environmental regulation we've got. Um, so myself as a coastal practitioner see this more than anywhere because where the land meets the sea we've got two systems of planning and we've got different public bodies with different legal responsibilities but the law is a bit inaccessible to people because it's complex. Um, and what I like about the concept of wild law is that it has the potential to take people right back to their local connections to nature and the fishermen 
um, the farmers. They have a lot of political traction in the UK, but we tend to often be clashing, and we need to come together for the longer-term benefit of the resources we all want to be able to use. Um, and there's a concept in, 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 in sort of law that's been buried. <laughs> and um, I think Emma is best to explain how, how the concept of the public trust has the potential to bring wild law into, into the UK. Yes, Emma, tell us about public trust. What, what does this mean for those who um, are lawyers? Yeah, well, before I do that, I just wanted to pick up on something Shahana said about a, a paradigm shift. And I suppose I see it slightly differently as if we present wild law to people as a complete paradigm shift, I worry as a former commercial lawyer that it just gets ignored. It's too radical for people, particularly a group of conservative lawyers. Most conservative, <laughs> one of the most conservative professions there is. Absolutely. Um, so uh, what Natasha and I have been doing is sort of trying to think of other ways to approach this that use the current system. And, and what we talk, spoke about in the conference this morning was the public trust doctrine. It's, it's often seen as a US concept. It's, it's very highly developed over in the USA, but it is present in our law. So we're not talking about something that's totally radical and bringing in something new. We're talking about picking up what we've already got and using it in a way to further the aims of what law. What is the public trust doctrine? Okay, so it, it's not set down anywhere in particular. You can't go to a particular statute and find out what it is, but it's, it's the, based on a general principle that certain resources, like we talked about the sea and coastal areas, are inherently common resources. And so they need to be managed by the state to protect this public interest in them. doesn't necessarily mean they have to be owned by the state, but any privacy private ownership interest in them needs to be managed by the state to protect the public interest. Can you give me an example of, of where that might be working in practice? Um, okay, so for example, um, my research is looking at uh, fishing. So there's a public right to fish in the UK. We can all go and fish in the sea. And if you owned a beach, for example, you can't stop people from fishing on the foreshore. There's various things you could stop them to do, maybe accessing, but in terms of fishing, if they were to sail over your land while the, the tide was in, you couldn't stop that because that's the public right. Similarly with the public right of navigation, you know, that, that is there for the public regardless of any private ownership interests. So how will that doctrine support bringing in wild law, particularly perhaps in a coastal concept? In context, rather, which is what you've been looking at, Natasha. So there are two potential ways we see it being sort of furthered in the UK. One is through um, the role of the Crown, and in legal sense, there's, there's opportunities to further the public trust um, through the duties of the Crown. Um, and then there's also a very practical route, um, which is very connected to work I do as a coastal practitioner in planning and management terms, in that. Um, we, we are seeing all over the UK um, people wanting to take more sort of local ownership and uh, the formation particularly of rivers trusts are a really good example of where volunteers are trying to represent more than their own personal interest um, and the rivers trust movement across the UK has gained a lot of momentum it's helping government implement some European legislation water framework directive but it is also a way of people being more connected to nature and having a voice. That's the key thing. As trustees, they are a voice 
in a decision-making process. And the way the trustees are represented through charity and company law, I think, can connect to the aspirations of the, the general wild law movement. That's really encouraging because actually what you've done just there really is, is given a kind of call to action for people who want to get involved, who may not be lawyers and may not be specialists, but do feel passionately about the environment that they're living in and the community that they're living in and the landscape around them. And, and, and we can all push ourselves forward to work as volunteers or as trustees, can't we, given that we've, if we have the time or, or, or the inclination. And that's a key role that, that the general public can play in helping roll it out. And, and very interesting, and we've come full circus, really, because you've talked about that, that, that role of the Crown, which was so in, instrumental in, in, in New Zealand, but also in that sense of just reminding us that actually this isn't radical, as, as you said, when, and there are examples already in our existing law to allow us to take this forward. So it's just a lack of, of, of inclination. Um, it's a fascinating discussion. I'm so sorry, but as always with the pod, we've, 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 we've run out of time. We've got far more to say. But if people are interested, we will put all of your, your links onto the website and they can follow up and perhaps also follow the case of, of the bylaw in Froome, which I think is about the River Froome. So yet to hear the results of that action, but, but, but we hope it's positive. Thank you very much for joining us and, and um, it's been a fascinating discussion. You've been listening to Planet Pod, the podcast for everyone who cares about the planet. Join us next time when we'll be out and wild at the Nepp Estate in West Sussex with Isabella Tree and her team. <laughs>